This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 45, Judy Nesbitt. It was 1980. 42-year-old Judy Nesbitt, a stay-at-home mother of four, was busy. What mother isn't? But it was Thanksgiving time, and the holidays are always next level up in terms of activities and events for large families. The Nesbitts were no exception, and on Wednesday, November 26th, Judy was starting preparations for the big turkey dinner she would serve to 25 people the next day. She was also supposed to take her son to an appointment and to pick up her daughter Lisa from her work shift at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the two planned to shop together for some of the items they needed for the family feast. But Judy managed to squeeze in some time to run to a one-on-one meeting with someone unbeknownst to her husband. No, she wasn't having an affair, but this meeting would alter the course of the Nesbitt's lives forever. Lisa ended up waiting for her mom, Judy, to show up at KFC, but she never did. So Lisa walked home and sat on the couch waiting for her mother. Judy was supposed to take Lisa to a hair appointment at 6, and when Judy still wasn't home for that, Lisa started calling some of her mom's friends. None of them knew where she could be. When Judy's husband, Fred, got home from work at around 6.40 that night, he was surprised that Judy wasn't home and had not left him a note. For a while, he chalked it up to her running errands for Thanksgiving the next day. But then he learned from Lisa that her mom had missed her hair appointment and that Judy had gone to the marina earlier that day. Like the rest of the Nesbitts, Judy loved being on the water. She enjoyed taking solace in the family's large boat, which they kept down at Marina Dunes Yacht Anchorage on Marina Bay in Newport Beach. Even though it was dark by 7 p.m., Fred thought he might find his wife on the boat since he knew she had gone there that day. He had called the boat, which Lisa described as a second home for the family, a couple of times after he got home from work, but there was no answer. He decided to go down there anyway. Fred and his teenage son drove to the marina and they saw Judy's car in the parking lot. When Fred arrived at Slip 11 on Dock F around 7.35 p.m., the boat was dark. And even weirder, the boat was padlocked up in the manner the family left it when no one was on board. Using the combination code, Fred unlocked the dangling padlock and went into the cabin cruiser. He later told the LA Times, quote, There didn't appear to be anything wrong, anything out of place, so I went down to the forward part of the boat, end quote. 
He found the door to the forward cabin where the bunks were located closed. He opened it, and on the narrow floor between the two bunks, in a supine position, he found his wife's body and a lot of blood. Fred later recounted to the Times, quote, I just panicked. I touched her pulse, but my heart was beating so fast that I couldn't tell if she was dead or alive. I screamed, and another fellow who was around there heard me. I think the paramedics came. To this day, I can't really remember exactly what happened after I found her. I panicked, end quote. Paramedics did come, but much, much too late to help Judy. She was dead. Her fully clothed body was already cool to the touch. Someone had killed her, locked up after himself, and left Judy to be found by her family in the bowels of their boat. At 7.40 p.m., Newport Beach Police Sergeant Matson responded to the marina, having heard a radio call requesting medical aid for a dead body found inside a boat. The radio call noted that the death seemed suspicious. When he arrived, he encountered a fireman exiting the rear cabin door. The fireman told him that there was a dead woman in the cabin and that there was a lot of blood. Sergeant Matson observed the demeanor of Fred Nesbitt, who had found his wife and called it in. The sergeant described Fred's behavior in his report as highly upset and alternating between anger and tears. Meanwhile, Lisa was still waiting at home for her mom. When Fred and Lisa's brother failed to come home too, Lisa picked up the phone and called the boat. She told the Daily Pilot, quote, A guy picked up the phone and said, Newport Beach paramedic. I said, let me talk to my mother. He kept saying she was ill, she's ill, and I began screaming into the phone asking for my mother. She's passed away, he told me, end quote. Let's talk a little bit about who Judy was. Judy Conklin was born on July 15, 1938, to parents Ide and Dean Conklin. Her siblings were older brother Dean Jr. and her twin brother Jerry. The family moved from Santa Monica to Beverly Hills shortly after Judy was born. I couldn't find anything about her early life other than that she was a diligent student and an all-around good girl. Judy met Fred Nesbitt when she was 19 and her friend set her up on a blind date with him. Fred was a lifeguard at Newport Beach. He grew up in the area as well. As an adult, he worked for Paul Monroe Hydraulics in Whittier. He achieved the position of vice president of sales. Like many women of her generation, Judy stayed home with the kids. The couple had married in December 1958 and moved to 14161 Chagall Avenue in Irvine from North Hollywood in 1972. When Judy died, they'd been married for 22 years. Their four kids were Stephen, age 20, a second son whom I'm calling by the pseudonym Matthew for reasons that will become apparent throughout this episode. Matthew was 19. Lisa was 17, and Jeff was only 12. They grew up on the water. The family always had boats, starting out with a modest family craft named the Felicidad, which means happiness in Spanish, and working their way up to the 36-foot Felicidad 4 cabin cruiser, the boat on which Judy was killed. They were described as a normal, happy family who did everything together. And Judy, whose entire life focus was on her family, was the rock at the center of it all. Back to Wednesday, November 26th. The fireman who spoke with Sergeant Matson observed immediately that rigor mortis had set in. The dead woman in the foremost cabin had been dead for hours. There was a large pool of blood under her head, staining the carpet on the floor of the boat's sleeping quarters. Orange County Sheriff Coroner Criminalist R. Keister arrived at the scene to observe. 
Judy lay on the floor between the two bunks in a supine position. Her head was toward the entry stairs, and her feet were pointing toward the bow. At ten minutes past midnight, the body was collected for autopsy at the UCI Medical Center morgue after being officially identified as Judith Conklin Nesbitt. Dr. Peter Yater conducted the autopsy on Judy at 9.45 the next morning. The cause of Judy's death was immediately clear to Dr. Yater. She had a bullet hole to the lower right side of her face from a close-range gunshot. The bullet had entered her jaw at an upward trajectory and gone into her skull. It had been fired from a 38 caliber handgun. The bullet was collected from inside Judy's head. The official cause of death was, quote, cerebral destruction from a gunshot wound to the head. But there were also indications on Judy's body that she had been hit on the back of the head three times with a blunt object. There was blood all over the cabin where Judy had been attacked, consistent with a bleeding head wound. And she had a fresh one-and-a-half-inch laceration on her forehead, a one-inch laceration on her right temple, and a cut on her upper lip. Judy was found fully dressed in a blue blouse, black pants, a beige bra, and pantyhose. Her shoes were found on the floor underneath her. Interestingly, there was no indication whatsoever of sexual assault, although Judy was found with her blouse ripped open to the waist. Two of the blouse's buttons scattered throughout the forward cabin were collected by crime scene techs. Police came to believe that Judy's blouse got ripped open in the scuffle with her attacker. Her earrings exhibited signs of forceful removal. And Judy had several defensive wounds, a three-quarter inch long diagonal incised wound on her left palm extending onto her ring finger, and several abrasions on the back of her left hand that were identified during autopsy. After the autopsy was complete, Judy was transferred to Pacific View Memorial Park and Mortuary while her stunned family made arrangements for her funeral. The funeral procession would turn out to be so large that a stretch of the Pacific Coast Highway was shut down to accommodate it. Police were there, too, surveilling the crowd for anyone suspicious. Newport Beach Police Detective Hatala arrived on the scene at around 11 p.m. Additional detectives as well as crime scene techs from Newport Beach and members of the Orange County Sheriff's Department Crime Lab arrived and began to photograph and process the boat. The two different agencies handled different areas of the boat, a division of resources that would have lasting ramifications for the investigation. Eventually, the Felicidad 4 was removed in its entirety for crime scene techs to analyze at the Orange County Sheriff's Harbor Patrol dock in Corona del Mar. Nine latent fingerprints were lifted from the boat, but investigators noted that they would likely be of little help since some of the teenage Nesbitt kids had recently had a party aboard the boat. According to the affidavit for probable cause that I reviewed, physical and biological evidence was collected and examined. This consisted of the buttons from Judy's blouse and a hoop earring found on the floor of the cabin near her arm. Its mate was found bent on a bunk cushion on the bunk above her body. Judy's sunglasses were found resting on the countertop in the boat's galley area. After poring over the conditions of the interior, investigators concluded that Judy had walked into the sleeping quarters of the boat and her attacker followed her there and accosted her. Although there was a telephone on the boat, Judy had not had a chance to use it to call for help. Investigators began to form a theory that Judy had been surprised by the attack, which caught her off guard, 
and her attempts to defend herself were quickly overcome. Blood spray was found on the wall near her head, on the countertop above her, on a box of eight-track tape cartridges, and on the opposite wall three feet above the floor. As noted by the medical examiner, Judy had put up a struggle. Physical evidence at the scene indicative of a fight consisted of the earrings and buttons being found scattered, Judy's discarded shoes, and the fact that a throw rug on the floor of the cabin where Judy was found was discovered crumpled up and kicked aside. And a brown thread was found on one of Judy's hands. This turned out to be a segment of unraveled carpet from the boat cabin floor. This wasn't the only evidence found on Judy's hands, but that did not become important until decades later. More pieces of evidence found in the boat cabin are chilling. Short pieces of white cord were found on the floor under Judy and on the bunk cushion alongside the hoop earring. These 25-inch long pieces of cord were analyzed, and the Orange County Crime Lab determined that they were not consistent with any other cords or ropes present on the Nesbitt boat. Detectives came to believe that Judy's killer brought the cords along with him, intending to tie her up. Other items of potential evidentiary value were collected and photographed. Police found a partial shoe print on the port side bulkhead and a tiny quartz rock that they thought might have been tracked in in the killer's shoe. A knife collected from the galley sink was collected and tested for blood. It came back negative. Surprisingly, a garbage bag containing paper trash was not collected at the scene because it was determined that, quote, no crime-related material was present in the bag. Dirty dishes and cups were not collected from the galley sink either, kind of an oversight since there was the possibility that the killer was someone Judy knew who might have joined her in a snack on the boat. Police dive teams plumbing the bay near the Felicidad slip were unable to find the murder weapon or anything else of evidentiary value. But one last look over the boat by Detective Bob Hardy and crime scene investigators Stevens and Wigand proved important. They collected two hairs that were on the galley countertop near where Judy's purse had been rummaged through. I'll get to that in a minute. These two hairs did not resemble Judy's. And these hairs would be the turning point in the case almost a half century later. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. 
Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. That's GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. A quick peek into the Nesbitt's life showed that they were an ordinary family. Judy and Fred had a good marriage of 22 years and were faithful. There were no secrets, and the possibility of Judy having been killed by a paramour after a tryst on the boat was quickly ruled out. The answers as to who killed Judy were not found by detectives delving into her personal life. As then-detective Bob Hardy of the Newport Beach Police Department told the LA Times in 1988, quote, This was an absolutely all-American family. There was no hanky-panky involved here. She was the typical American homemaker that anyone would love to have as a wife, end quote. Obviously, this comment's a little dated, but Hardy's point was clear. Nothing in Judy's Nesbitt life made her a target for this kind of violent murder. The only drama that the Nesbitts had going on involved one of their teen sons, the one I'm giving the pseudonym Matthew, who had been getting into trouble and been arrested after a purse-snatching incident. He was facing a potential 16-month sentence. Judy had been very upset about this, and Matthew had been asked to move out, but had recently been permitted by his mother to return to the Nesbitt home. Tensions remained high, though, and the appointment that Judy and Matthew had gone to on the morning Judy was killed was actually a court date for Matthew's case. Detectives made note of this and moved on. Another thing investigators could not figure out was why this had happened in the first place. What was the killer's motive? The boat did not appear to have been ransacked. Judy was found wearing a gold necklace and a gold ring. No one had taken these valuable items. Her earrings were found at the scene, and an inventory of the contents of Judy's purse revealed that some items were missing, but they weren't of significant value. Judy's cloth handbag was found on the floor of the boat's galley area. The purse's contents had been dumped out onto one of the countertops, the one where the two hairs were found. Coins were found scattered on the galley countertop and the floor. Fred Nesbitt told detectives what Judy usually kept in her purse— her wallet containing a MasterCard, a Bank of America credit card, and a Sears credit card, a checkbook, a cosmetic case, and her keys. Fred said that Judy usually carried only a small amount of cash, between 5 and $40 at most. All of these things, except the cosmetic case, which was found on top of the purse, were missing. But these items did not amount to anything worth shooting a woman in the head for. They seemed to have almost been taken as an afterthought. And... Investigators found what they believed to be a torn one-inch piece of rubber glove snagged in the zipper of the cosmetic case. 
Had the killer been wearing gloves and opened the case to see if its contents were worth stealing? The evidence all added up to a planned event, the binding cord, the rubber glove, the weapon that had never been found. Police wondered whether someone had followed Judy onto the boat, or had someone arranged to meet her on the boat, part of a plan to get her alone. Maybe this person took the credit cards and checkbook, which would be missed, to make it look like a robbery. And sure enough, police discovered that, as I said earlier, Judy had gone to meet someone that day. The Nesbitt family was selling the Felicidad for. They were buying a new house and intended to use the money brought in from the sale of the 35-foot Lures twin diesel cabin cruiser to help pay for the new home. This being long before Craigslist or eBay, Fred and Judy placed a simple classified ad in a local paper advertising the white-hulled Felicidad 4 for sale and giving the phone number for the Nesbitt home. There is some debate about when exactly Matthew Nesbitt, the teenage son who was in a bit of legal trouble, told the investigators this next bit of important information. He says that he related to investigators in 1980. Unfortunately, records weren't maintained about all the interviews conducted, and some reports indicated that police did not know this information. But in a 1999 interview, Matthew definitely told the following story. A phone call came into the Nesbitt household at 9.30 a.m. on the day that Judy was killed. Matthew, the Nesbitt's then 19-year-old son, answered the phone. A male caller was on the line inquiring about the boat for sale. Matthew handed the phone to his mom and heard Judy tell the caller that, yes, the Felicidad 4 was for sale, and yes, she could meet him that day. In response to something the caller said, Judy responded that she couldn't meet that morning, but she could get to the boat for 1 o'clock p.m. They agreed to meet at Marina Dunes, Dock F, Slip 11, and Judy gave directions to the man on the phone. Then they hung up. Tragically, Judy did not tell Matthew who the caller was or write anything down that could later be helpful to the investigation into the identity of this male caller. After the phone call, Judy and Matthew went to his court appointment. They returned to the home around noon. Judy had to turn around and head to the marina for the boat showing appointment. She asked Matthew to accompany her, but he declined. She would go alone. Judy left the house at 12.15, and she never came home. Someone on the boat with her shot and killed her. Police came to believe that it was her killer on the other end of the phone line, luring her to the Felicidad. Police started talking to other boat owners at the marina, hoping to find witnesses who might have seen something. About 12 of the more than 230 boat owners at Marina Dunes resided on their vessels, and the marina was a busy one, especially during the holidays. So hopes were that perhaps several owners would have been around and seen or heard something. Police learned that generally the boat owners were familiar with the other owners who had slips on the same dock, but the marina had multiple docks and was bustling on any given day. Unfamiliar faces on other docks and in parking lots were the norm. Further, the marina had no security. This is why the Nesbits kept their boat padlocked closed. Although signs posted at each dock gave notice that the docks were to be accessed by boat owners only, there was no enforcement of this provision, and the marina was fully open to the public. A news article dated November 28, 1980, said that detectives were following up with boat owners and drivers of cars parked at the marina 
but hadn't been able to find anyone who had any information. But soon, they did. The Nesbits had kept their boat at the same marina for several years, so they were familiar to other regulars. They were well-known and well-liked. Dolores Heisler, who worked in the Marina Dunes rental office and knew Fred and Judy, told police that she spoke with Judy that Wednesday afternoon around 1 o'clock in the parking lot. Judy had told her she didn't have time to chat as she was meeting a potential buyer for their boat. And police found out that someone had seen Judy and this man together. After canvassing other boat owners at Marina Dunes, police felt that they had a significant lead. Several witnesses, by some reports as many as four or five, had seen a man checking out the Felicidad 4 on the morning of the murder. One witness in particular, a Ruth Mills, resided on her boat which was docked at slip F-16, five slips from the Nesbitt's vessel. Ruth told police that she was waiting for the arrival of a boat mechanic around 9 a.m. that morning, so she was hanging out outside. This, per the LA Times, quote, She saw this guy walking around, so she approached him and asked if he was the person she was waiting for. He told her no and asked her if the Felicidad was for sale, end quote. Ruth said she didn't know and suggested that the man ask at the marina office. The man then told her that he had an appointment to meet the boat's owner at 1 o'clock that day, and he was going to call her, meaning the Felicidad's owner, to verify the appointment. With that, the man walked up the dock toward the parking lot. So what about the phone call to Judy? This per the affidavit prepared by Detective Mike Fletcher of the Newport Beach Police Department. Quote, Based on the fact Mills spoke to the suspect during the same time frame that the victim spoke to him, I believe the suspect called the victim from the marina payphone. The tolls at the payphones located at the marina were never obtained. End quote. What Detective Fletcher is saying is, unfortunately, the 1980 investigators did not think to look at the marina phone's outgoing phone records to try to tie the payphone there to the call to Judy's home. And itemized call records of incoming calls to residences, such as the Nesbitts, were not available in 1980 absent a pre-established trace. So this avenue of investigation could provide no clues as to the identity of the killer. Back to the day of the murder. Later on, at 12.54 p.m., the eyewitness, Ruth Mills, saw the same guy on board the Felicidad, he was unfastening the canvas cover from the flybridge of the boat, which would need to be undone in order for anyone to access the cabin area. At 12.57, Judy Nesbitt arrived. Ruth saw her exchange greetings with the man on the boat's deck, who said to Judy, I hope you don't mind. He was referring to having opened up the canvas tarp. Judy said something along the lines of, You want to see it all, and the two went below deck. At that time, Ruth who remembered the young man as having a nice smile, stopped paying attention to the activities aboard the Felicidad. Ruth was able to give a very good description of the man she'd seen. He was white, maybe mid-thirties, average build and height, wearing a tan jacket, brown pants, and aviator sunglasses. He had neat, chocolate-brown hair worn long over his ears. This somewhat generic description pointed to pretty much half the men in California in 1980. Nonetheless, crime scene investigator R. Stevens met with Ruth and had her complete an identikit composite of the suspect, where the witness matches up the shapes of various individual facial features to those they recall. From this, a sketch artist did a rendering, and the image was published in the local papers five days after the crime. 
police switchboards were inundated with calls from the public reporting everyone from their neighbor to their co-worker. As one detective told the Times, quote, he was seen everywhere and nowhere. But interestingly, the man in the sketch was not recognized by anyone in the Nesbitt family. So as far as police were concerned, this guy seen by Ruth Mills was the last person to be seen with Judy Nesbitt and was at the scene of the crime. They were pretty confident that Aviator Guy was their suspect. And their confidence became certainty when Ruth Mills told them that there was more. Not only had she seen this guy on the boat with Judy, but she had heard something unsettling as well. A couple of minutes after she had seen Judy and Aviator Guy go below deck on the Felicidad, Ruth heard a woman scream, Oh my God, oh no! Ruth didn't know what to make of this, but a few moments later she heard three piercing screams that ended abruptly. This was enough to get her to poke her head out to see what was going on. She didn't see anything untoward happening on the Felicidad, which sat placidly in its slip. Several other boat owners were also peering around, trying to see where the screams were coming from. This, per Detective Hardy in the Times, quote, You really couldn't tell where the screams came from, so she dismissed it again. In fact, Ruth told police that the other boat owners were not looking toward the Nesbitt's boat, so she assumed the screams came from somewhere else. Another minute or so passed, and then Ruth saw the young man in the aviator's sunglasses leave the Felicidad 4 and walk up the dock toward the parking lot. Ruth thought it was very odd that he had left without helping Judy put the canvas cover back on the boat. She kept watching, noting that the engine hatch and the cabin door on the Felicidad were both open, and she began to be a little concerned that Judy hadn't emerged. But then, Aviator Guy returned. Ruth assumed that he had just gone up to use the marina's public bathrooms. The man went back aboard the boat, went in the cabin area, and then, after a few moments, left again, walking toward the parking lot and out of Ruth's sight. Ruth noticed that now the boat's hatch and cabin door were both closed, and she could see that the padlock hanging from the cabin door latch appeared to be locked. She thought it was very strange that she had never seen Judy leave the Felicidad. According to the affidavit, quote, she thought about calling the police, but decided not to because she did not want to seem nosy, end quote. But after a half hour, she became concerned enough that she called the marina office and requested that the dockmaster check the Felicidad. Tom Ginger, the dockmaster, came down to the Nesbitt's slip and glanced over the boat, but he didn't see anything unusual. Of course, he couldn't access the cabin because it was locked, and the canvas cover was in place, so he couldn't see through the boat's windows either. So this is really, really weird, right? People hear a woman screaming in broad daylight, and they don't really do anything about it. But wait, it gets weirder. Other ear witnesses actually heard the single gunshot. Newport Beach Police Captain Wayne Connolly commented on the bystander effect that seemed to have paralyzed everyone. He told the LA Times, quote, Some people saw this individual around the area, others heard screams, and others heard the gunshot, but it wasn't reported to the police department by anyone, end quote. Connolly observed that no one called the police for six hours, and that was only when Judy's husband found her on the cabin floor dead. I have so many questions. How is it possible that witnesses hearing screams and a gunshot did not think to call police? Why did Aviator Guy leave and come back? How was he so brazen as to do all this in midday in a public setting? Wasn't he concerned about anyone hearing anything? Perhaps it wasn't his original intention to shoot Judy. It had just happened. But in that case, it seems like remarkable luck that he was able to just walk away undetected. 
I'm so excited to welcome our new sponsor, Magic Mind. I'm now an official Magic Mind ambassador. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because this little elixir really works and has made a big difference for me. Like many people with busy lives, I rely on caffeine to give me a boost in the morning. And I like a little green tea after lunch to get me through the afternoon, a time when I find my energy levels dip. But I'm also someone who, as I get older, can't tolerate too much caffeine. It makes me jittery and messes with my sleep. I've had to cut back. But that's not a problem because since I discovered Magic Mind, I need much less caffeine to stay energized. I keep my Magic Mind shots in the fridge and have one every morning after my regular cup of coffee. And that's it. That's all I need to maintain steady and consistent levels of productivity throughout the day without that dragging feeling I used to get in the afternoons. That's because Magic Mind extends the benefits of caffeine for more long-term release. But that's not all this delicious little shot does for me and hopefully will do for you. Magic Mind is a curated compound of several high-end ingredients like ashwagandha, nootropics, and matcha that together contribute to reduce stress and anxiety, better sleep, consistent energy, and less inflammation throughout the body, among other things. Before sampling it, I ran the ingredients in Magic Mind by my dear friend who's a nutritionist, and she raved about it. So I tried it, and I've received all the benefits I've described, plus I've noticed a decrease in my blood pressure, which is a good thing. I'm making my husband try Magic Mind, and I have sent some to my nutritionist friend as well so she can recommend it to her clients. That's how convinced I am that it works. So where can you get Magic Mind to try it for yourself? It will be sent right to your door so you don't have to do a thing. And don't worry, it's not nearly as expensive as you would think considering it took Magic Mind seven years to develop. If you subscribe for regular monthly shipments of Magic Mind, it costs even less. You just need to use my discount code DNA14 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your purchase if you choose not to subscribe. The best part is they have a money back guarantee, but I know you're going to love it. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days though, so hurry up guys. Also, Magic Mind's new 14 Days of Magic program is a fun and exciting way to reap the benefits of the Magic Mind product and contribute to global positivity all at once. Film yourself throughout your 14-day Magic Mind journey and post your video mashup showing the benefits you've gained from using the product using the hashtag 14 Days of Magic. For every 10,000 views the hashtag challenge generates, Magic Mind will donate $10 towards the reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. You can do your own part while enhancing your own productivity, energy, and focus. Don't forget to use the DNA ID promo code DNA14 to obtain your 14-day supply, or even better, subscribe for regular deliveries of Magic Mind. And watch the donations live on Instagram at Magic Mind on November 30th, 2022. Go to www.magicmind.co slash DNA. Again, that's www.magicmind.co slash DNA and enter the code DNA14. 12 dedicated Newport Beach detectives used the suspect sketch prepared with Ruth's help to circulate to all boat basins, harbors, and marinas from Long Beach to Dana Point, hoping that their guy was someone known to others in the boating community in the area. Captain Connolly said, quote, Hopefully he is someone who has looked for other boats in the area. We don't like this kind of case, and our success rate doesn't look very promising unless he has looked at other boats or if someone recognizes the guy. End quote. Boy, was he right. Despite the fact that police had a working sketch of Aviator Guy and the fact that several people were ear witnesses to the murder, they struck out on finding out who he was. 
Ruth had told police that after she lost sight of aviator guy walking toward the parking lot, she observed a white or cream-colored Ford or Chevy full-size pickup truck that she did not recognize drive out of the parking lot. But this wasn't a very specific description, and it failed to bring in any leads. And not only did investigators have an unknown suspect, they had an unknown motive as well. They didn't think that robbery was the motive, saying that the items taken were of little monetary value, and anyway, no one ever attempted to use the credit cards or checkbook taken from Judy's purse. And the attack on Judy didn't appear to be sexually motivated either. So what was the reason behind her murder? It was perplexing, which is in fact the word used by Captain Connolly when he described the status of the investigation. He told the Daily Pilot, quote, it seems to get more mysterious rather than clearer, end quote. The investigators pursued many of the logical avenues of inquiry. One of the investigators at the time, Sergeant Mike Jackson, told the LA Times in 1988, quote, we looked at everything. You just never know. It could be a serial type killer, a nut. We checked other want ad killers, other cases that looked similar, crimes involving other boats and the sale of boats, sex offender lists. With the lack of clues, you have to go in all kinds of directions, end quote. And as listeners know, investigations that go in all kinds of directions instead of down one focused path often come up short. As I said, police had few leads to go on, but a series of rapes in the San Francisco area bore startling similarities to what had happened to Judy. The rapist terrorizing the Bay Area was referred to as the want ad rapist because his MO was to rape women who had placed for sale ads whom he had arranged to meet to look at their personal items for sale. He had struck six times in Palo Alto, Redwood City, Union City, Pleasanton, Santa Clara, and Milbury, and was suspected in two additional attacks. An article about the want ad rapist appeared in the San Francisco Examiner on November 26, 1980, the very same day that Judy Nesbitt was killed. What were the chances that her killer, who had made an appointment to view the Felicidad after seeing the classified ad and then attacked Judy, was not the same guy responding to ads in San Francisco and victimizing women who met him? It just seemed a little too coincidental. Police in the Bay Area knew who their suspect was. 33-year-old Joe Bill Kalk, spelled like the stuff you use around your bathtub. He lived on a boat in Santa Cruz and was a boat maintenance man, another parallel to Judy's case. He had a record in California and had done time for burglary, rape, assault, robbery, and other crimes committed in the San Diego area starting in 1970. But he was out now, and he'd been using this same M.O. for about 18 months. Police were on to him because several of his rape victims had been able to identify him. So police ran a dummy ad in a local newspaper and turned the tables on Kalk by luring him to a phony sale. When they nabbed him, they interviewed him, but then shockingly let him go while they put together an arrest warrant. They noted that he was white, about 5 foot 10, 175 pounds with brown hair. He loosely fit the description of aviator guy, and he was not in custody when Judy was slain. And he was still on the loose in 1981, all the way across the country in Maine, when he called to arrange to meet a young realtor, Nikki Cleveland, supposedly to view a house she was listing. At the remote house, he raped her and shot her in the head using a gun he had stolen in California. If you haven't listened to my Carolyn Rose and Virginia Freeman episodes about the dangers of being a female realtor, 
go back and listen to those episodes. Anyway, Kalk was finally caught and arrested in 1982 in North Carolina on outstanding charges of rape, kidnapping, robbery, and burglary in New Hampshire. One California detective, Fred Porras, had been hunting Kalk for more than two years. When Porras's request for funds to travel to New Hampshire to interview Kalk was denied, he borrowed the money from a buddy, took some time off, and flew to New Hampshire on his own dime to meet with the suspect, who was now wanted for eight separate sexual assault incidents in the Golden State. In the interview, Kalk broke down and admitted the attacks, saying a, quote, bad guy inside him drove him to do it. Kalk was later convicted of several of the California cases based on his admissions during this interview, and he was convicted and sentenced to 30 years for his New Hampshire crimes. He was also facing charges for attacks in Massachusetts and the main slaying of Nikki Cleveland, and for stealing the identity of a dead child, William Meskis, who had passed away in 1956. Kalk ended up nearly starving himself to death in a New Hampshire prison after requesting that he be allowed to die. In May 1984, a superior court judge ruled that the 36-year-old, who had lost 60 pounds, could be force-fed until the New Hampshire Supreme Court decided the constitutionality of allowing him to die of starvation at his own request. Kalk started eating again, and the whole thing went away. After his time was served in New Hampshire, Kalk was sent to Massachusetts to start serving his sentence for rape and robbery convictions there. And get this, while in prison in Massachusetts, Kalk was charged in 2005 for the rape of a woman in Jacksonville, North Carolina, back in 1981. He had responded to an ad she had placed to sell her waterbed, and instead he tied her up and raped her. For this attack, a man named Leo Waters was arrested and served 21 years in prison until he was exonerated by DNA in 2003. All of this is a very long tangent in the Nesbitt case for which Kalk for a time looked like the prime suspect. It has to be said that the Kalk Investigation Avenue derailed Judy Nesbitt's case for quite some time. Newport Beach investigators thought it was him. Judy's twin brother, Jerry, who was with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department at the time of his sister's murder, was also convinced that Kalk was the likely suspect in his sister's death. And he was in contact with the Newport Beach guys, and they focused on Kalk to the point that they actually had Lisa Nesbitt write Kalk a letter in prison, asking if he'd killed her mom. Kalk responded with some vague language denying culpability, and the investigators didn't feel that he denied it convincingly enough to put stock in. They continued to focus on him, even though they learned that Kalk had an alibi for the day that Judy was killed. They even convinced themselves that the sketch of Aviator Guy looked sort of like Kalk, which it didn't. The reality was that they had tunnel vision on Kalk because he seemed like such a good suspect based on the similarities in time and M.O. But Joe Bill Kalk didn't kill Judy. As unlikely as it seems, there were two California-area predators simultaneously preying on women based on classified ads. Eventually, investigators gave up on trying to tie Judy's murder to Kalk. But he was one of the worst sexual predators that I have come across. Thank goodness he is rotting in prison right here in Massachusetts. Okay, back to Judy's case. The Nesbitt family, as is the case with many other families, fell apart after the incomprehensible murder of its matriarch. The sale of the Irvine home and the boat were planned anyway, but 
The family was more than ever eager to be rid of these material reminders of Judy's presence and violent death. Lisa, just 17 when her mom was slain, told the Daily Pilot, quote, There's no doubt about it. Everybody in our family is a victim of this thing, end quote. Her little brother, only 12 years old at the time, didn't even really understand what had happened, Lisa said. Although Lisa told the Daily Pilot three years after the murder that initially it brought her and her siblings and father closer together, years later, Fred Nesbitt told the LA Times of Judy's murder, quote, it just tore the family apart. We all handled it differently. There is a vindictiveness that is inherent in the older three kids and myself. The boys were ready to go out and get a gun and go shoot someone, end quote. Judy's oldest son, Stephen, spoke with the LA Times as well, describing the lasting impact his mom's murder had on him and his family. He was just 20 when his mom was killed, the oldest of the four kids. In 1988, at age 28, he said of his then five-year-old daughter, quote, It's funny, but my daughter asked me just a few weeks ago how come she'd never seen my mother. I didn't know what to say. She can't really figure out why I don't have a mommy. We'll have to wait a few years, I guess, before we can tell her, end quote. Of the man who killed his mother, Stephen said, quote, There is a part of me that will never die until that SOB dies. This feeling won't be lifted from our chest until that guy is caught. End quote. He also likened the whole thing to a mob hit, a kind of clean, cold murder that never gets solved. Judy's twin brother, Jerry Conklin, was a lieutenant in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. At the time of his sister's murder, he'd been in law enforcement for 17 years, and he'd seen his share of bizarre cases. He said to the L.A. Times, quote, There are so many problems with this case. There were no witnesses and very little physical evidence. Judy's case plagued detectives for years and then decades after her murder. They ran into brick wall after brick wall. For example, the bullet taken from her body was compared to other ballistics reports relating to other violent crimes in the area, but nothing ever matched. The fingerprints of 25 people over the years were compared to all the latents found on the boat. Nothing ever matched in this department either, but remember the killer may have been wearing rubber gloves based on the little piece found in the makeup case zipper. Furthermore, the ammo used in Judy's case, where the killer lured her to the boat and then shot her, had been entered into the VICAP database and generated no matches. 32 years after Judy's murder, Newport Beach detectives were still at work. By this point, they'd interviewed more than 50 people over the course of the investigation, and they were still seemingly no farther along than they'd been on day one. Aware of the significant advancements in forensic technology since the 80s, they went back to the physical evidence still sitting in the case file. Remember, Judy hadn't been raped. There were no bodily fluids from the suspect detected on her corpse. This was confirmed decades later using a very sensitive acid phosphatase test on samples taken at Judy's autopsy to verify that there was no seminal fluid in her body cavities or on her clothing. Fingernail scrapings from Judy's body didn't lead anywhere either. But 1980 crime scene texts had preserved some items that would turn out to be crucial. Per the affidavit, quote, two loose hairs were examined and deemed suitable for DNA analysis. These hairs were actually located in the galley on the counter where the victim's purse was rifled through and ultimately thrown to the ground, end quote. In 2002, these two hairs were examined under a microscope by a forensic scientist at the Orange County Crime Lab, 
who determined that the hairs had a still intact bulb from which minute amounts of skin cells could be extracted. Tests showed that the hairs both came from the same male source. Although the roots on both hairs had to be entirely consumed in order to conduct DNA testing, this was deemed a risk worth taking by investigators. Hair root number one was analyzed using multiplex PCR-based DNA typing, and hair root number two was subjected to identifier and powerplex Y systems, which yielded a Y-STR profile of an unknown male. The profile was sufficient to be entered into CODIS in December of 2002, and investigators were hopeful that a match would come to light. After all, it didn't seem feasible that the brazen killer of Judy Nesbitt had struck only once. Surely his DNA would be in the system. But there were no hits. Either he had struck only once, or the evidence collection at the scenes of any other crimes he committed was not as thorough. And more hopes were dashed. Familial searches using the unknown offender's DNA profile would have been permissible under California law, but the rudimentary 2002 profile had an insufficient number of loci, making the sample non-qualifying for this type of search. So, although they had the offender's partial genetic profile, 2002 investigators were seemingly no closer to finding out who he was than investigators back in 1980. Sixteen years passed. Starting in early 2018, Sergeant Court Depweg, head of the Newport Beach PD Crimes Against Persons Unit, reviewed the entire Nesbitt case file with an eye toward any steps that could be taken to advance the cold case. According to the affidavit, the Newport Beach Crime Lab reviewed the remaining unidentified latent fingerprints taken from the Felicidad and determined that they were of insufficient quality to be entered into APHIS. The year before, in 2017, Judy's clothing and earrings, the buttons, and the pieces of cord found near her body were all subjected to additional, highly sophisticated testing. The results showed only low levels of DNA that were insufficient for testing due to the lack of one major contributor. In other words, they didn't have a sample that they were confident would yield a complete or near-complete DNA profile of the suspect. The same proved true for the fingernail scrapings, the opening of Judy's purse, and the zipper area of the cosmetic bag. The killer's gloves almost certainly prevented his DNA being left on those last two items. But there was hope. Sergeant Debweg noted that the two hairs that had produced a partial DNA profile sufficient for entry into CODIS were still in evidence. These were the hairs that had been found on the counter in the galley area of the Felicidad. The roots of the two hairs had all been used up in connection with the DNA testing conducted over the years. But now, in 2018, the Newport Beach investigators took advantage of cutting-edge DNA extraction techniques that were newly available. They used a company called Astria Forensics, where a doctor named Ed Green from the University of California at Santa Cruz had pioneered something previously thought impossible the extraction of autosomal single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP DNA, from a hair shaft. As a side note, I learned more about human hair growth in the course of writing this episode than I ever thought possible. It turns out that hair growth goes through three stages, and depending on what stage it's in, it will have root material when it falls out or it won't. It gets way more detailed than that, but we're on a need-to-know basis here, so I'm not going to overly complicate things. 
the hairs found on the galley counter, which had roots on them, were in the antigen phase of hair growth, which meant that they would not have fallen out on their own. These hairs were physically yanked out of someone's head, and that someone was likely the killer. So it became crucial to analyze these hairs to obtain as much information as possible about their origin, since they had no other DNA from or fingerprints of the killer. But since all the roots were depleted by earlier testing, Dr. Green had only the original hair shafts themselves to work with. No root bulb remained. But here's where the cutting-edge stuff comes in. Through his work, Dr. Green had discovered that rootless hairs do, in fact, contain DNA. And in February of 2019, he was able to extract a complete genetic profile of the single male hair source from both hairs, the suspected killer. As C.C. Moore explained it to the Epoch Times, quote, So for decades we've been told there's no autosomal DNA in the hair shaft and you have to have the root. But it turns out that's not true. There actually is. It's just nobody found it before Dr. Green, end quote. An August 9, 2021 press release from the Newport Beach Police Authorities reads, quote, This was the first DNA extraction of its kind to identify a murderer in a criminal investigation in the United States, end quote. And CC said, quote, That's what makes it different than the 170 other successful cases that I've worked on, is this was the first and so far the only one where we were able to solve this case based on that piece of hair without the root, end quote. Of course, Cece became involved in the case because just because investigators had the killer's DNA profile did not mean they knew who he was. But the profile developed from the hairs was sufficiently specific to permit forensic genealogy to proceed. Okay, this is another crazy part of this case. It turned out that back when Judy's body was autopsied in 1980, a bunch of short brown hairs had been found clenched in Judy's hand. The hairs, 21 of them, were stuck in her hands in dried blood. And two additional hairs had been found on one of the pieces of cord near Judy's body. All of these hairs were entered into evidence separately from the two hairs found on the galley counter. These hairs were analyzed at the Orange County Crime Lab back in 1980, and then they sat there for 38 years. Somehow, this group of hairs became separated from the other physical evidence in the Nesbitt case file and they weren't rediscovered until Sergeant Depweg was reviewing the case file in 2018 with an eagle eye. He noted that there were two separate property evidence numbers for two batches of hairs from the crime scene, maintained by two separate crime labs, Orange County and Newport Beach. The OC crime lab batch contained 23 hairs that had never been subjected to modern testing and were in fact still sitting there in evidence untouched. Sergeant Debweg sent the 23 hairs to Astria Forensics in 2020, and here's what they found. The two hairs found on the cord belonged to Judy herself. Eleven of the remaining hairs were male, but were not suitable for genotyping analysis. However, Astria was able to conduct a mitochondrial DNA enrichment test on the 11 hairs. This allowed the lab to determine that one of the male hairs did not have any distinct difference between its mitochondrial DNA and that of the profile from the two hairs on the galley counter. This was a very, very important discovery. What this meant was that the male hairs on Judy's hand likely came from the same man as the hairs on the galley counter. So this was not just some guy who had randomly had two hairs pulled out while he was on the boat. And remember, 
the hairs would have had to have been forcibly ripped out of the donor's head. The same was true of the 11 male hairs found in the new batch of evidence. Investigators now believe that Judy grabbed a handful of the suspect's hair when she was struggling with him, so she ended up with some of his hairs in her hand, and then two more of his dislodged hairs fell from his head onto the galley counter as the suspect was dumping out Judy's handbag. In the meantime, while all this testing was going on, the investigators from Newport Beach pursued several avenues of investigation that they felt had not been adequately followed up on by the original investigators 38 years earlier. For example, another boat owner at Marina Dunes had reported that his boat had been stolen from the marina a few days prior to Judy's murder. Dana Point Harbor Police had located it, but the identity of the boat thief had never been determined. And investigators learned that there was a rash of similar crimes that they thought could be connected. An LA Times article I reviewed from September 1980 addresses boat thefts from Newport Harbor. And a series of thefts of powerboats and small yachts plagued marinas up and down the coast throughout the 1980s. The thieves turned out to be an LAPD cop and his cronies, and they were responsible not only for many of the boat thefts, but for two murders as well. A 16-year veteran of the LA police force named William Leisure was arrested in the Bay Area trying to sell a 41-foot power yacht. The boat had been stolen in San Diego. Leisure's partner Robert Coons, a convicted bank robber, was also arrested. Within days, the thefts of at least 11 vessels were linked to the pair, who stole the boats under cover of night, disguised them, and registered the boats to themselves or accomplices, sold them up and down the coast to targeted buyers, and then collected insurance money for their, air quote, losses. The total losses to boat owners and insurance companies in this scheme exceeded $1.5 million. But the scheme didn't stop there. The two were linked to illegal guns, drug running, grand theft auto, offshore bank accounts, political corruption because Leisure's wife was a city attorney, and two or three contract murders. Another LAPD officer, Leisure's partner, was also arrested. As you can hear, the whole thing was a giant mess worthy of its own podcast. But the question for modern-day investigators was, was Judy's murder somehow related to this whole scheme? After speaking with some of the still-incarcerated parties, Sergeant Debwick and his colleagues decided that their crimes really didn't mesh with the M.O. in Judy's case. There was zero evidence linking Judy's slang to these corrupt co-conspirators, whose schemes reached far beyond the seemingly motiveless daytime murder of a housewife. The detectives backburnered this avenue of the investigation, and it turned out they were right to do so, because forensic genealogy was about to provide them with some answers. As soon as they received the suspect's SNP profile from Dr. Green, the Newport Beach investigators uploaded it into GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. Then they started working directly with C.C. Moore. The genealogy work in this case was particularly challenging because the only relatives of the killer who were in the open-source databases were in the kinship range of third cousins. The top two matches shared only about 100 centimorgans with the suspect. As we all know by now, Third cousins are very distant relatives in that they share only a set of great-great-grandparents. It took months of work by C.C. and two Newport Beach cold case homicide investigators to develop the family trees leading to the suspect. 
They were able to determine that the suspect descended from a Martin Harbor, born in 1841 in Mississippi. Martin had six children with his first wife, Mary Robertson of Alabama. When she died in 1887, he remarried and had seven children with his second wife, Elizabeth Roberts. At some point, Martin moved his family to Texas. Based on the matches she could see, Cece knew that the suspect's roots were somewhere in this Harbor family, in which the patriarch had fathered 13 children, and which firmly had roots in Texas in the subsequent generations. She noted that one of Martin Harbor's and his first wife Mary's daughters, Rachel, married a James Mark in Mississippi in 1887. They had four kids, including a William Grover Marks. And William Grover Marks had seven children. One of them was a son named Bert Warren Marks. In 1951, Bert married a woman named Dorothy Louise Raines, and they had five children. Dorothy passed away in Arvada, Colorado in 1967, and Bert relocated his family to California. This last detail was, of course, of significant interest. No one else in this ancestral Marks family, which the matches showed the suspect was descended from, had ties to California, where Judy Nesbitt was killed. The father, Bert Marks, was too old to be the killer of Judy Nesbitt seen by Ruth, the eyewitness, who described the man she saw as young. Bert was born in 1926, making him 54 at the time of the murder. But he had four sons, all of whom lived in Orange County, California, in 1980. These four sons were, and I'm going to use their initials in all the cases except the killers, G, D, C, and Kenneth. They had a sister as well, Kay, but of course she was not on the suspect list. And for once, investigators had a fairly easy time deciding where to start. Two of the brothers, D and C, were only 21 and 19 respectively, which was too young to have been the aviator guy Ruth described. Plus, their driver's license photos from that time frame showed that both D and C had light hair, nothing like the chocolate brown Ruth had described. That left only two brothers, G and Kenneth. G was a felon with a profile in CODIS that did not match the unknown killer's profile, which had been entered into CODIS in 2002 and never had a hit. So G wasn't the killer either. And that left only the last brother, Kenneth Elwin Marks, as the likely killer. Like so many other killers I've covered, Marks was long dead. He died in 1999 without ever being connected to Judy's murder. So having narrowed down the list of possible suspects to the name Kenneth Elwin Marks, Sergeant Debwig wanted to get confirmation that Marks could be their guy. And he was able to get some more information from the CODIS database. It turned out that Kenneth Marks's brother C had a son, and that son, J.D., had a criminal history for crimes such as drug dealing and theft. And he had been required to submit his own DNA profile to the Orange County Offender DNA Database. So, in other words, the dead suspect Kenneth Marks had a nephew, J.D., whose genetic profile was available to investigators for comparison. The Orange County DA's office DNA unit conducted a YSTR familial comparison between the profile of J.D. Marks and the DNA profile of the killer of Judy Nesbitt, suspected to be Kenneth Marks, and they matched. The testing showed that J.D. Marks was not a descendant of the suspect, meaning that his father, C., was eliminated as a suspect. But the testing also showed that J.D. was very closely related along the paternal line to the suspect. 
D. Marks, the fourth brother, submitted a DNA sample via a consensual buckle swab, and testing eliminated him as the killer as well. From the affidavit, quote, The Marks surname was a direct match, and our suspect had to be a Marks family direct member. End quote. But Bert and his sons, G, D, and C, were all eliminated as I just described. This confirmed that Kenneth Marks was almost certainly the killer of Judy Nesbitt. Kenneth Elwin Marks died on April 30, 1999, at age 44 of cancer. But investigators got lucky. He had not been cremated. Upon his death, he had been transported to Texas, where much of his family resided, and buried in Thomas Cemetery, located at 886 County Road 1326 in Bridgeport. You can probably guess what investigators did next. In an effort to get 100% certainty that Kenneth Marks was their killer, they dug him up. I spoke with the Texas Ranger who assisted the Newport Beach investigators in tracking down the DNA of Kenneth Elwin Marks. B.J. Hill of B Company arranged for the exhumation by preparing the Wise County search warrant for the exhumation order. Using the information provided to him by the California investigators, he prepared a probable cause affidavit to show cause why Marks' DNA was needed. The exhumation order was signed by Wise County Judge Brock Smith on August 10, 2020. It called for the exhumation of Kenneth Marks from Thomas Cemetery Plot Number 157 within three days' time. Ranger Hill attended and videotaped the unearthing and opening of the 20-plus-year-old grave, along with representatives from Hawkins Funeral Home who supervised the event. Maverick Tractor Service of Decatur handled the digging. They located the grave, noting that Marx's headstone bore the inscription, quote, Kenneth E. Marks, April 18, 1955, April 30, 1999. Loving son, brother, uncle, end quote. The excavator started work at 8.30 a.m. and the casket was lifted out by 9.23. It was transported to Hawkins Funeral Home in Bridgeport, where Dr. Mark Ingram of the University of North Texas Missing and Unidentified Persons Forensic Anthropology Lab collected several items for DNA sampling. Ranger Hill told me that he expected that Ken Mark's remains would be reduced to bones after more than two decades underground. But he related apparently they used a lot of embalming fluids back in 1999 because, creepily, Marks was still intact, with his facial features even recognizable. This was true even though his body had been soaking in groundwater for an untold number of years. In fact, he was so well-preserved that Newport Beach investigators were able to confirm that he indeed resembled the witness sketch from back in 1980. Ranger Hill told me that Dr. Ingram swabbed the orbital bones with a DNA swab, took the femur bones and some head hairs from Marx's body, placed him into a new casket in lieu of the waterlogged old one, and reburied him. The disturbance to the body was minimal. The swabs, femurs, and hairs were sent to the Orange County Crime Lab in Santa Ana for testing. And now you're waiting for me to say that the testing showed conclusively that Marx was the killer. But that's not what happened. The body was too waterlogged for DNA to show up in the orbital bone swabs, and the testing on the femurs was inconclusive. Investigators were going to have to confirm the identification of Marks as their suspect through circumstantial evidence. Let's look at Marks and how detectives concluded that he was definitively the killer of Judy Nesbitt. 
Kenneth Elwood Marks was born on April 18, 1955, in Ponca City, Oklahoma. His father was Bert Warren Marks, who was born in Wortham, Texas in 1926 and died in 2015. His mother was Dorothy Louise Marks, who died very young at only 41 years old in 1967. As I mentioned, Kenneth had three brothers and a sister. The Marks family moved from Denver, Colorado in 1968 to Norwalk, California, and then to Irvine in the early 70s. Ken Marks graduated from University High School in Irvine in 1973 as an honor student. A photo I found of him in the 1973 yearbook shows him in the astronomy club. According to his obituary, his hobbies included collecting antiques, refinishing furniture, art, studying astrology, building wooden model ships, and surfing. He died of cancer in a state hospital in Santa Ana on April 30, 1999, at age 44. When he killed Judy, he was 25 years old. We've heard from several people who knew Marx back in 1980 that he was a bit of a loner. As far as we know, he never married. As a young adult, his father got him a job at the refinery where he worked, but Marx was fired after a theft incident and theft seemed to be a common theme throughout his life. He didn't have a lot of arrests, but there was an arrest for burglary in 1973, a disturbing the peace in Costa Mesa also in 73, and one for grand theft in Newport Beach in 1982. He also had a DUI in 1978. It doesn't appear that the theft incident at the refinery was ever prosecuted. Marx also dealt drugs throughout the 70s and 80s. He supplemented his income by doing odd jobs, but it doesn't appear he ever had any steady employment. He also did not seem to have successful relationships with women or men that investigators could locate. Investigators visited with Mark's sister, who I'm calling Kay. When they told her the purpose of the visit, she said, my brother Kenny, but that was all. Kay was not very forthcoming with information, but she did tell the investigators some stuff. She recalled that Marx lived with their father in Irvine and worked in a refinery located in Paramount. When he got fired and his Porsche was repossessed, Marx expressed frustration about money and blamed their father for his financial shortcomings. Kay described Marx as friends with a lot of different types of people. She said he was a big surfer back then. She couldn't recall him owning a handgun, but she had also moved away from the area by the time of the murder. Detective Fletcher and Sergeant Debweg went to Texas to meet with Marx's brother, G. They took special notice of the fact that G, who, remember, was himself a convicted felon, expressed zero surprise or shock at the news that his brother, Ken, was suspected in a cold case homicide. He basically shrugged. It was as if he already knew, or perhaps he did. G said that Marx was a loner who pretty much kept to himself. He sold drugs during the 70s and 80s, which detectives already knew. G said that Marx was the type of person that if he, quote, saw something he wanted, he would take it, end quote. G recalled Marx owning a rifle, which the Irvine police took after an incident in which G had threatened someone with it in an incident involving drugs, and also owning a revolver during the late 70s. Unfortunately, G could not remember what type of handgun this was. And this is creepy. G said that Marx was really into boats. He then showed the detectives several model boats he still had in his home that his brother Ken Marx had constructed. It was unclear whether Marx got interested in boats before or after he killed Judy on one.
The other two Marx brothers were also cooperative with investigators. As I said, D gave a DNA sample that eliminated him. The three brothers were able to shed light on the Marx family tree. They confirmed that only the Burt Marx family with kids C, D, G, K, and Kenneth had moved to California from Colorado. That put this specific branch of the family as the only one with a nexus to the state where the murder occurred. And they also confirmed that there were no other male cousins who could possibly share the YSTR profile that was found in the hairs of the crime scene. This information was crucial to helping confirm that only Ken Marks could be the killer. So how was Kenneth Marks connected to Judy Nesbitt, if at all? Since police believed that he was the caller on the phone who lured her to the Felicidad, there must have been a connection, however remote. And it seems that, unfortunately, investigators in 1980 did not cast as wide a net as they could have in their search for Judy's killer. Knowing that most of the time the victim is at least acquainted with her murderer, police could have dug a little deeper than they did. I will say detectives at the time did do quite a bit of investigating. After all, they looked as far away as the want-ad rapist luring women from newspaper ads in the San Francisco area. But in this case, they should have concentrated a little closer to home. If they had, they could have captured Judy's killer alive. It turned out that the original detectives on the Nesbitt case were told by Matthew Nesbitt, Judy's son, whom I'm not calling by his real name, that on the night before the murder, he had some friends over to party on the Felicidad from 7 p.m. until about 11 p.m. Remember, I said that there were nine latent fingerprints lifted, but because the kids had had friends over on the boat, there were a lot of unidentified prints. Well, here's the list of friends' names that Matthew gave to investigators at the time as people who were on the boat with him the night before his mom was killed. David, Peter, Harry, and Ken Marks. Yep, you heard me correctly. Ken Marks. Now, of course, detectives at that time would have had no reason to suspect that Ken Marks or any of these friends of Matthew's had anything to do with Judy's death. But modern-day cold case investigators discovered that these four were never even interviewed by police. If they had been, investigators would have learned that both David and Ken Marks had arrest records. David had a 1980 arrest in Oklahoma for grand larceny, and Marks had an arrest in 1973 for burglary and another in 78 for DUI. Furthermore, Ken Marks was 25 years old at the time of the murder. All of the other kids on the boat were at least five years younger than he was. What was he doing hanging out with the younger crowd? Was there a reason he wanted to be on the boat that night? It certainly seems as though police should have interviewed him. And if they had, they might have noted that he strongly resembled the sketch provided by Ruth Mills. As Detective Fletcher spelled out in the affidavit, quote, Kenneth Elwin Marks described as a male, white, 5 foot 11, 160 pounds with brown hair, who would have been 25 years old at the time of the crime, does in fact match that of the suspect description provided by witness Mills. The cheek structure, nose, mouth, and hairline were distinctly similar when compared side by side, end quote. I saw the photo of Marks taken in the early 1980s next to the sketch. It's a dead ringer. In fact, Sergeant Debwick told me that they believe he was actually wearing the same pair of sunglasses, the aviators, in both images. Good old Ruth was very observant. Sadly, once police had an actual photo of Marks, 
they couldn't show it to Ruth as she had died years earlier. But there was more. I'm taking this right from the affidavit. Quote, on December 19, 1980, Fred Nesbitt contacted Detective Thompson regarding a, quote, suspicious subject hanging around in his neighborhood. The subject identified by Fred Nesbitt was a Ken Marks. In the course of the detective's investigation of the name provided, they mistakenly identified the wrong Ken Marks and found another Ken Marks who was approximately the same age. This Ken Marks was described as a male, white, six foot four, 200 pounds, someone who did not at all resemble the Ken Marks who knew Matthew. Based on the physical description of this person not matching the description of the suspect, as provided by Ruth Mills, Ken Marks was excluded as a suspect, and no additional investigation was concluded as to the identity of any other Ken Marks. End quote. So just to recap this, just three weeks after his wife's murder, Fred Nesbitt called police and reported that a Ken Marks was being a problem. We don't know exactly what behavior on Marks's part triggered a call to police by Fred, but now that we know that Marks killed Fred's wife, it seems crazy that he was drawing Fred's attention to himself just a month after the murder. And then detectives ran the name given to them by Fred, inadvertently focused on the wrong Ken Marks, and based on what he looked like, dismissed Fred's concerns. This all begs the question, of course, of how 1980 detectives did not cross-check the case file for the name Ken Marks, and note that the same name reported by Fred for shady behavior toward the family was also someone named as having been aboard the Felicidad on the night before Judy was violently murdered there. It also raises questions about how Matthew Nesbitt did not recognize the voice on the other end of the phone back on November 26, 1980, when he answered the phone and the caller asked to speak to his mom. Matthew was re-interviewed at length 19 years after his mom's murder. At that time, he told now Sergeant D. Jones that he had been the one who answered the phone when the supposed boat buyer called his mom on the morning she was killed. He estimated the caller's age to be in his late 20s to early 30s, not far off since Marks was 25. But Ken Marks was on the boat with Matthew the previous night. Wouldn't he identify his voice? But then, we really don't know how well they knew each other. Some people say Marks and Matthew were good friends. Others say Marks was just Matthew's pot dealer. Marx's brother, G, did confirm that Matthew Nesbitt was friendly with Ken Marx, but it's really not clear how close they were. And, of course, Marx could have disguised his voice on the phone when Matthew answered it. Now, in 2020, cold case investigators, having just learned that Kenneth Marx, the killer of Judy Nesbitt, had been a guest of her son, Matthew, on the Felicidad on the very night before the murder, wanted to verify this. They set out to contact the other three guys Matthew had originally named as also being on the boat that night, and actually tracked them down. What are the chances these now grown men would remember much from a few hours spent partying on a buddy's boat 40 years earlier? David spoke with Detective Fletcher on August 4th. David said he couldn't recall much about the whole thing. He lived in Oklahoma at the time of the Nesbitt murder and was just visiting the area. He wasn't even that good friends with Matthew, he said. He did recall that the boys had gone to the Felicidad around dusk, hung out in the galley, and drank a six-pack of beer. They didn't stay very long. All he knew about Kenneth Marks was that he was a bit older, a loner, and drove an older model Mercedes. Pete, who was also on the boat, was interviewed on August 4th as well. Interestingly, Pete said he was never interviewed about the case but had been fingerprinted. That's confusing. 
He remembered being on the boat in the galley area and that the boat was for sale and they weren't supposed to be there. He said Matthew kept asking everyone to keep it down because of the people living on the neighboring boat. When a light came on at a nearby boat, they left quickly. Pete really wasn't helpful because he stated that as far as he remembered, Ken Marks wasn't even on the boat that night. He also didn't recall David being there. He did know Ken Marks and said his car at the time was an old Mercedes. Detectives had questions about all of this, and I'm going to be frank and tell you that they were somewhat suspicious of Matthew Nesbitt and had concerns that he could have been in on the crime. Detective Fletcher noted the following suspicious things about Matthew. 1. Matthew admitted that he had invited his buddy Ken Marks onto the Nesbitt family boat the night before the murder. That seemed like too much of a coincidence. 2. They only had Matthew's word for it that a phone call about the boat had come into his mom from some man. He could have made the whole thing up or lied about not knowing who was on the phone. It was kind of weird that he didn't recognize the voice. 3. Detective Fletcher also discovered that Matthew didn't really have an alibi for the time of his mother's murder because the original detectives back in the day had never really bothered to look into it. But not only that, over the years, his statements to police had been inconsistent. The original incident reports reflected varying facts, in air quotes, about whether Matthew was the one to answer the phone and where he was when his mom was killed. 4. Matthew had refused to accompany his mother to the meeting on the boat, which could have been for nefarious reasons. In other words, how did Marks know that Judy would come alone rather than with someone in her family? Unless that was all part of the plan. And five, Matthew had a record for robbery, and Fletcher believed the motive for Judy's slaying was robbery. Matthew was on the outs with his parents after he was charged for the purse snatching, and he admitted to being angry with and resentful of his mother. Detectives realized that they could not rule Matthew out as a suspect. Even if he wasn't the trigger man, perhaps he had set his mom up for a robbery by his buddy and pot dealer Marks, intended to share the spoils. It wasn't out of the question. It was time to sit down with Matthew. Detective Fletcher and Sergeant Depwig interviewed Matthew at the Newport Police Department on August 5, 2020. They went back to the day of the murder and the phone call from the supposed boat buyer. Matthew reiterated that he didn't recognize the voice on the call. He handed the phone to his mom because the caller was asking too many questions. His mom later asked him to go with her to show the boat to the caller, and he said no. He didn't want to go with her. He wanted to go to his friend Morris's house to party. I have to say this is probably a normal reaction for a teenage boy, to not want to hang out with his mom and instead go hang out with his friend. But one has to assume that Matthew will regret this decision for the rest of his days. The friend Morris was dead, so the investigators had no way to confirm whether Matthew's somewhat lame alibi was solid. When asked about Ken Marks, Matthew said that he was closer to Ken's brother, G. He liked Marks, though, because he played the guitar. Marks was different, he said. I'm quoting here from an interview synopsis. Quote, Matthew went on to describe Ken Marks as a quiet guy who always kept his room darkened, the shades drawn. His house was a place where they could go drink and smoke weed, end quote. Marks sold drugs, but wasn't a big-time dealer and only sold pills and pot as he came across them, Matthew said. He never knew Marks to have a gun, although he acknowledged of all his friends, Marks was the most likely to do so. 
Detective Fletcher asked Matthew about the call from the killer asking for directions. Fletcher believed that the call supposedly asking for directions came from the marina, and the killer already knew where the boat was, since Ruth had seen aviator guy nosing around the boat that morning before the time of the phone call. The boat did not have a for sale sign on it. So, it seemed plausible that the killer could have been one of Matthew's friends from the boat the night before who had cased the joint. Fletcher asked Matthew, did he think any of the boat buddies could have been responsible for what the police believed was a robbery gone wrong? Detective Fletcher then read Matthew the list of the names of the guys he had reported way back in 1980 were on the boat with him the previous night. Here is the exchange. Matthew, I mean, out of that list, I guess it would be Ken Marks. I can't imagine it. Sergeant Depwag, why not? Matthew, he was soft-spoken and he always had money. End quote. When asked how Marks obtained said money, Matthew admitted he didn't know. Marks didn't have a job, and while he sold drugs, he didn't sell that many drugs. Matthew thought that likely Marks' parents gave him cash. He confirmed that Marks drove up a blue Mercedes. But then Matthew remembered that Marks had done something really weird after the murder. There had been a wake at the Nesbitt home in the days following Judy's death. Matthew said he had talked to Ken Marks, and Ken knew there would be free beer at the house. Marks showed up at the Nesbitt home unannounced and drank some beers. None of Matthew's other friends came to the wake, and it was very odd because he and Marks were not very close. Matthew remembered that one of his grandmothers, Dorothy or Kay, was not happy about this and told Matthew that Marks should not be hanging out at the house and drinking beer. The grandmother told Matthew to, quote, get him out of here. Matthew then asked Marks to leave. But others recalled that Fred had in fact asked Marks to leave because he was acting suspicious. And remember, he didn't know the family well at all. This was all weird because Marks had only been to the Nesbitt home one or two times ever. And Matthew said until this macabre visit to the wake, his parents had never met Marks. Marks had never met Judy. It was definitely overstepping for him to show up to the wake. And it makes you wonder whether he was reveling in his little secret. Did Marks continue to stalk the family? It would explain why Fred Nesbitt called the police about a Ken Marks hanging around and acting suspicious in December 1980. Marks lived less than a mile from the Nesbitt home at that time, but no one knows how he came to the attention of Fred or why. Matthew didn't recall why or when he lost touch with Marks. He did acknowledge that Marks had been on the Felicidad. But Matthew had no recollection of being on the boat the night before his mom died. He seemed to be confusing it with another time when he got in trouble for leaving roaches, the drug kind, and mess on the vessel. He said there had never been any physical fights or roughhousing on the boat. The detectives were interested, of course, in how all those hairs got there. Detective Fletcher finally came out and asked Matthew whether he had ever been involved in any plan to have his mother robbed, and he stated no. Fletcher then asked Matthew if he knew who killed his mother, and Matthews again stated unequivocally no. When shown the sketch based on Ruth Mill's description of the man she saw on the Nesbitt boat, Matthew admitted that of everyone he knew from back then, it looked the most like Ken Marks. At this point, detectives asked Matthew to take a polygraph exam. He readily agreed, and the polygraph examiner found no deception indicated. Investigators' concerns about Matthew were put to rest, and he was cleared of involvement. To this day, he remains unhappy that his involvement was even questioned, and this is why I am using a pseudonym for Matthew. 
So to recap, investigators are now certain that Kenneth Marks was the killer of Judy Nesbitt. Here's what sealed the deal in their minds. The complete male DNA profile taken from the hairs in the galley that was consistent with the mitochondrial DNA of the hairs in Judy's hands was consistent with the YSTR profile from Marx's family. DNA in CODIS showed that Marx's brother G was not the killer. His nephew JD was not the killer, and JD's father C was not the killer. DNA obtained via a buckle swab showed that D was not the killer. The Marx family confirmed that they were the only Marx descendants in California, and there were no male cousins who could be the murderer. That left only Kenneth Marx. Kenneth Marks looked exactly like the sketch of the man seen by Ruth Mills at the Felicidad, down to the dark chocolate brown hair still on the head of the body exhumed in Texas. He was the only Nesbitt brother who had hair that color. None of his brothers matched the description Ruth provided, and his father was too old to be the man Ruth saw. Kenneth Marks lived near the Nesbitts and almost certainly saw Judy Nesbitt in the neighborhood, as he was known to hang out regularly with a guy who lived just down the street. Detectives believe he needed money, as he'd been fired from his job and had been literally beaten up by his drug source for using all the drugs he was supposed to sell and failing to pay the money he owed. He had a history of theft and was known to own a handgun at the time. And he had been on board the Felicidad on the night before the murder and knew the boat was for sale. And the man seen by Ruth knew exactly where the Felicidad was docked, even though there was no for sale sign on the boat and even though he had not yet called to make the appointment to meet Judy. So this next part of the story is pretty incredible. In July 2020, 40 years after the brutal slaying of Judy Nesbitt, Newport Beach detectives tracked down the Felicidad 4. Yes, it was still an ocean-going vessel. It was owned by a man in San Pedro, California, who allowed detectives on board to see the boat for themselves. This gave detectives first-hand knowledge of the location where Judy had been attacked and killed and allowed Detective Fletcher to formulate his theory about what happened on that November day in 1980. I'm paraphrasing here from the affidavit written by Detective Fletcher. I believe the victim was lured to the Felicidad for by the suspect when he called the victim to schedule a meeting to see the family boat, which had been advertised for sale in the classified ads of the Daily Pilot newspaper. The suspect was either at the Dunes Marina when he placed this call or in close proximity to the marina. The victim met him there at 1300 hours and removed the padlock and entered first, placing her sunglasses and purse on the galley countertop next to the sink. The suspect followed the victim into the upper cabin and they walked down the stairs into the sleeping quarters. It was in this area of the vessel that the suspect saw his opportunity to take the victim by surprise by grabbing her from behind. It was a confined space where he could contain her and it was out of view of anyone walking on the dock above and it would muffle any noise. It is my opinion that the victim screamed, oh God, oh no, as heard by Ruth Mills upon the suspect first grabbing her. The suspect began striking her on the back of the head with the handgun he had brought, which in turn caused her piercing screams and her fighting against him, resulting in the defensive wounds to her hands. The victim attempted to get away by throwing open the forward hatch. This is why her earring and one of the cords was found on top of the forward bunk cushions just under the hatch. The suspect at this point grabbed the victim from behind, holding her by her chest and throat area, which, when she struggled against him, 
caused the buttons on her blouse to be ripped off. She managed to grab a handful of his hair as she fought. The suspect then pushed the 38 caliber revolver against the victim's cheek using his right hand and fired a single round which traveled into her skull. Judy dropped to the floor, coming to rest with her feet very close to the hatch that futilely gaped open. Detective Fletcher believes that Marx's motive was robbery. He intended to quiet Judy by wielding the gun, tie her up, and ransack the boat and her personal items. When she wouldn't stop screaming, he had to shoot her. After he shot Judy, the suspect emptied out her purse to see if there was anything worth taking. As he did so, he dropped the two hairs from his head onto the countertop, where they were later found by Detective Hardy and his colleagues. After stealing the wallet with cards, keys, cash, and checkbook, the suspect stepped off the boat at between 1.10 and 1.15. Ruth Mills watched as he walked away, and then she realized he came back. It's Detective Fletcher's opinion that the suspect most likely came back to ensure that Judy was deceased, and perhaps to delay the finding of her body by locking up the boat and leaving it the way he found it. He left for the last time around 1.30. Okay, so we'll likely never know fully what motivated Kenneth Marks to call up Judy Nesbitt and pretend to be a potential buyer for the Felicidad. As I said, Detective Fletcher believes robbery was the main goal. But it is also possible that sexual assault was on Marx's mind. Detectives believe that Marx saw Judy in the neighborhood and possibly fixated on her. He was known to sort of strike out in the love department and was single and a bit of a weird loner. It all fit. After all, when Marx lured Judy to the boat, he was armed with rope, rubber gloves, and a gun. It seems like a lot of planning and trouble to go to to just dump out her purse and grab some credit cards. Sergeant Depwig told me that he suspects that Marx's plans, whatever they were, were foiled when Judy fought back much more assertively than he expected. Instead of being compliant and submitting to being tied up and assaulted, Judy put up a hell of a fight, screamed loudly, and tried to escape, and Marx was forced to shoot her to silence her. The whole thing failed to live up to whatever fantasy he had constructed in his mind. I can't help but wonder whether Marx ever tried it again, and if so, what happened? It definitely seems like he might have been a budding serial rapist or even serial killer, and perhaps the foiled attack on Judy deterred him from ever doing it again. But there is another plausible theory that Sergeant Debweg shared with me, and that was that Ken Marks actually intended to steal the Felicidad. We know he was in financial straits and he needed money ASAP. His father had cut him off after he was fired from his job his dad got him. We know that Marx was always looking for a quick fix to his financial struggles. We know that he was obsessed with boats based on what his brother G shared with investigators. We know that he knew the Felicidad was for sale, and possibly even for how much, if Matthew told him. And we know that at the time, in the early 80s, boat theft was a thing. It would have been very easy for Marx to sail off in the Felicidad to Mexico, or to change the number on the hull and sell the boat for quick cash. The question is, did Marx deliberately engineer meeting Judy alone, at a time when he knew others in the family were busy? Of course, if this was indeed the plan, it's not clear at all what his plan was for Judy. He couldn't very well tie her up and stick her on the dock in the busy marina in the middle of the day while he started up the boat and sailed into the sunset. No, if his plan was to steal the boat, it seems likely that his plan was also to dispose of Judy. 
The Newport Beach Police Department issued a press release on August 9, 2021, stating that Kenneth Elwin Marks had been identified as the person responsible for the murder of Judy Nesbitt. Police believed that if Marks were still alive, they would have probable cause to arrest him. Judy's case is considered closed. Newport Beach Police Chief John T. Lewis said in a statement, quote, This is a case that has hung heavy in the hearts of our community, our department, and the Nesbitt family. Kenneth Marks has passed away, but he no longer gets to hold the secret of his deeds. Through incredible advances in technology and the tireless dedication of these investigators, we now have some closure for all who knew and loved Judy Nesbitt, end quote. Steve Nesbitt, Judy's oldest son, who was 20 when she was killed, spoke to the Orange County Register after the announcement. Quote, not knowing was very difficult to deal with all of these years of why someone would do something so horrible to such a beautiful person, he said. But it's finally over. Personally, I wish he was still alive. I would have loved to have had a knock on his door and have handcuffs on him. I would have liked to see him tried. We're still all trying to digest it. As you can imagine, it's even after all this time, it's pretty difficult to deal with. I was extremely close to my mom, and she was close to all four of us. It was something that was haunting for 40-something years. Steve described his mom as positive, energetic, and loving. She was just the most beautiful person, he told the register. She just wanted to help everyone, a wonderful mother who was taken prematurely. Steve said that he was relieved that his father, Fred Nesbitt, had been able to learn the identity of the man who killed his wife before he passed away at the age of 85. Sadly, Judy's twin brother, Jerry, a lawman for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for 30 years, didn't live to see his twin's murder solved. He died in 2013 at age 75, not knowing who killed her. A large notebook that Jerry kept full of notes, files, and clippings on his sister's case has never been found. Lisa Nesbitt, Judy's daughter, told the Daily Pilot in 1980, quote, if those who commit crime would just realize what it does to families, maybe they wouldn't do it, end quote. If only she were right. After 41 years, Judy Nesbitt's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you to Texas Ranger B.J. Hill for speaking with me about this case. And special thanks, as always, to Newport Beach Detective Sergeant Court Depweg, whose dedication, empathy, and incredible attention to detail are inspiring. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.